I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today, we have longtime guest, Dr. Laurie Fonkin, back on the podcast. Dr. Fonkin is a licensed psychotherapist. She has retired from Colorado State University College of Veterinary Medicine, where she served as the head therapist in charge of veterinary student mental health for a long time. Uh, And now in her retirement, she is doing a lot of work with the Veterinary Hope Foundation. So we're going to hear about uh, that a little bit in the podcast today. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Funkin. Thank you, Lauren. It's so nice to be back with you and JJ. We would like to focus the episode today on resilience, Mm -hmm. and then we definitely want to hear more about the Veterinary Hope Foundation, but let's start off uh, maybe with just a definition of resilience uh, for the listeners as just a refresher. Uh, We hear the term resilience often, and um, it's often applied to the need to build resilience, but resilience is really our ability to cope with whatever life throws at us, uh, our ability to bounce back possibly to bounce back stronger and more steadfast than before. So resilient people are able to work through life's challenges, problem solve, come up with creative solutions, use their resources, and get through situations so that it doesn't impact them in a negative way. You kind of have to be resilient in this field. When do you know when not to be resilient or when to take time away, when to rest? I think that's an important question. About, um, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so, I was, we were talking a lot about resiliency training for our students and uh, at CSU. And I said, you know, veterinarians are some of the most resilient people that I know. They can work in really diverse and uh, sometimes chaotic situations. They are able to see a way forward through things and do what they need to do to take care of things. Veterinarians and veterinary techs have a vision of what they want to do for their work life. They set their goals. They make that happen. They know how to do things. They know how to be resilient through challenges. They face many challenges. To me, part of resilience is what we do, how we get through something, how we cope, maybe our coping skills, the resources we use, and things like that. And sure, there's a lot to resilience. It's very important. I don't think any of us would be here if we weren't resilient. Where you look at having to take a rest is when you're looking at somebody who's so resilient, so used to being able to get things done, to address the issues, to meet the challenges, it can sometimes become exhausting because the challenges keep coming. The workload keeps coming. The need is always there. And so how do you know when you're starting to get tapped out a bit? where you can say, wait a minute, I just went through another crisis. I got through it, but I need to pause. What I've seen in some veterinary practices with um, veterinarians or staff is that they believe that they should be able to push through everything. And if they're not able to be resilient, there's something wrong with them. And so when they hit that edge, when it's like, I'm just exhausted, I don't know if I can do this anymore, they try and push through that. And that's when we might see somebody who actually has to step away from veterinary medicine for a while or who starts to use chemicals in order to be able to continue to do what they're doing 
or has maybe more unhealthy coping mechanisms. And I would say at that point, when the resilience is great, you're able to do what you need to do to get through the situation. We need to take those pauses in between so that we can heal, so that we can refill our cup, so that we can even look at the situation that just happened. So we get through this major crisis. Let's stop and reflect on that. How do I feel about that? What emotions come up around that? Is it anger, loss, resentment, fear? What's going on within me after having just come through the situation where I was so resilient all the way through, but I'm feeling depleted? So that reflective piece at the end, I think, is really important. And I don't know that we spend enough time taking that. So I would posit to say healthy resilience is, yes, we get through whatever it is. We use all the resources and skills that we have to get through it. And then we're able to say, I need a break. I need to maybe not see this kind of uh, case for the next two weeks. Or I need to actually take a day off. Or I need to debrief this with my team whatever that looks like. And that pause is where some of the healing and reflection can happen so that you can be at your best game when you go back in, right? You're not depleted. I think when people push through their resilience too much, we end up losing them in some way. They leave the practice, they withdraw, they sometimes suicide is the out they take, uh, whatever it is. And, And so I love that question about, yes, the rest is really important. It sounds like part of resilience or part of practicing resilience in a successful way is knowing where that boundary is. And I'm, I'm guessing that's very dependent on the individual person. One of the things in our field that has been sort of a traditional value in veterinary medicine, I think, and JJ, you tell me if, if you have noticed this too, is this idea of like stoicism and grit, you know, like being real tough, like a John Wayne person, you know, and that kind of a thing. Kind of like being in the military. I mean, I've never been in the military, but I work with some people that are military now. And I, I, I grew up with family members that were in the military and it's, it was how I was raised. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. it was like a double whammy because already in the mindset of just push through, just put your big girl pants on and, you know, there's no crying in veterinary medicine. You just, you just do it. And so between that and because it was kind of expected of you a bit in the field that I was really, really late to figuring out that I can't. It's not, you know, I I passed the part of where I should have said no. Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where I couldn't. And I still I mean, the thought of going back to being a technician right now Mm -hmm. still. Yeah. I don't have the same violent reaction that I used to. It's just (laughs) more of a because it used to be. Oh, yeah. Now it's just like, nah. Nah, yeah. When, when we say we're, we want to practice resilience and build resiliency, I think we need to be really careful about making sure that people understand that we're not talking about pushing through things at all costs and having this real like g- grit and toughness and that those things are great, but um, they come at a price mm-hmm. and you have to you have to know where that line is. That's really important. And that's one of the qualities of resilient people is they're able to stop and reflect and say, okay, this is too much or I'm, I'm pushing too hard. And, and uh, I know you reached out to some of your listeners to get some ideas on resilience. And one of the themes that came up through that was boundaries. Yeah. And so there was a quote from a listener around boundaries 
that said there can be no long-term resilience for me without them. She needs, she or he needs the boundaries. Mm -hmm. Being a relief veterinarian has been the easiest way I've ever had to say no. Yep. Gave them the opportunity to say no, regardless of whatever the reason I choose not to work at the place. It's a poor fit. It's too long of a drive. It's my own vacation time. There's a time conflict. I can say no. And I'm sorry I'm not available. So saying that no and setting that boundary is a piece of a resilient protocol that we have for ourselves to say no to some things so that we can say yes for other things. I love this other comment from a listener that used no as a default response. (laughs) JJ and I were talking about that Uh right before we started recording. She or he started with a week of no. And then extended it to a month of no, (laughs) and then several months, and uh, states that it was especially helpful for them because there was a previous yes default answer. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think we do say yes a lot because of our, we want to perform and we want to prove that we are dedicated and caring and it's part of who we are, our profession. And yet, every time we say yes to something else, especially if it's that yes, where it's like in your gut, you're like, ugh. Why did I just do that? I mean, you know when it's coming out of your mouth. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. To just stop and say no or not this time or let me think about that. Mm-hmm. Whatever <laughs> it is to just give yourself that pause. But I love this. I might actually try this uh, saying no for a day. No for a I'll start a day. <laughs> a day. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> just see how that feels because then when you say yes, it's a hundred percent yes. It's a true yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can always, I think, well, I mean, not always, a lot of the time you can say no if you're unsure. If it's not 100% yes, you can say no. And then if you think about it and you're like, oh, man, I hate that I said no to that. Uh, Most of the time, I feel like you can go back and say, hey, you know, I, I know I declined that offer to speak at a conference, or I know I said I I can't really do that book chapter right now, or I I know I said I can't, you know, travel for family Thanksgiving this year, but I've thought about it, and actually, I really want to prioritize that, and so I've decided that I'm going to be able to make that work, and and, uh, I think in most of the cases, people are going to be like, awesome, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, and then, and if they're like, oh, I'm sorry the deadline's up, well, okay. You didn't really want to do it that bad anyway. <laughs> anyway. You know? like, yeah. I don't know. I love it. I love it. I too have made no a default answer in my life. And I'm not gonna lie, it's real it's real great. It's uh it is the most freeing thing mm-hmm. to be able to just be like, no, mm-mm. Nope. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm not available. Yep. No further information <laughs> about the situation. Yep. Just I can't make that work. Yeah. And I say no is a uh, no is not an emotion, right? It's a statement. Oh, mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. We attach a lot of emotion to our no. Like if I say no, they're going to think I don't care. Uh, they're going to think I'm lazy or whatever. You know, we whatever we attach to that no. But mm-hmm. you're right. N- uh, no is a statement. And we don't need to offer a huge, long explanation to our no. It's just a no, not this time. Mm. And I I think that when we look at it that way, our yes can also be yes. And uh, they're just statements. They're not emotions. And if we can separate the two, it's helpful. 
Yeah, I struggle with guilt for saying no or not volunteering to take on more things or that sort of thing. It, it, I, I do definitely feel guilty. And then I have to like, mm, stop. If you, you know, if it's, it's something you felt like you really wanted to do or interested in doing, you would have said yes. So you can say no and that's okay. And then you can just let it ride. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's the hard part. Absolutely. Just letting it ride without spiraling into a mental, oh, God, what if they think I'm a bad person? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, no, stop it. Well, um, that discussion kind of uh, reminded me of something, Dr. Funken. We did not in any way prep for this. So you can just be like, no, we're not going to talk about that. Lately, I've been reading a lot about this idea. I don't think it's a true theory. I don't think it's been studied necessarily, but it's just this um, this concept that people, maybe particularly in the United States, depending on things like their cultural, their ethnic backgrounds, their geographic location, are part of either an ask culture or a guess culture. And the people who tend to be askers are automatically assuming that the person they're asking feels comfortable saying no. And the people who come from guest cultures would never just directly ask for something. They leave hints and try to get the other people to guess what it is that they need because they never want to put people (laughs) in a position to Mm -hmm. say no. Have you come across that? I have not, but that is okay. very interesting because when I, it sounds like the ask culture, I would ask you something trusting that you will give me your honest response. Yes. Mm-hmm. So then I hand you that ask and I trust you to make a decision for yourself. The guest culture is more, I'm going to make the decision for you. Because I'm not even going to ask you directly because I'm guessing that this may be an inconvenience or so I don't give you the agency to really tell me mm-hmm. I'm ask I'm actually putting you in a situation where you have to guess, which my I'm thinking if I was making someone else guess, I would be disappointed often. Do they right? talk about that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and guess <laughs> Which, uh, guess which one, JJ, people in the southeastern United States are typically? Guess. Yes. And I hate it. A hundred percent. I've surrounded myself with so many direct people and I love it because <laughs> I need that. Because if you, if it's left open to interpretation. My neurodivergent uh, ass can't figure it out if it's open to de- interpretation. No. <laughs> I'm like, well, I, I know, just so say what you mean. What are you talking about? Gone into this <laughs> land of, oh my God, yeah. they hate me. Everything is terrible. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, I will be so far gone. And they're like, no, nah, man, I just really just, I mean, it's totally opposite of what you're thinking. So that's why I'm like, please be direct. Please say me exactly mm-hmm. what you want me to do, exactly what you need for me. And I'll be like, yes, no, maybe. But I hate that. And I, I'm, yes, 100% in the Southeast. What, so the article that I was reading recently, and again, this is not a peer-reviewed article or a study. It was literally just probably like a, you know, like regular journalist type article about this idea that's been proliferating online. I have absolutely no idea where it started. But the example would be like for guest culture. 
making a statement, I can't reach the box of cereal on the top of the pantry. And then what does that prompt the other person you're talking to to go get it for you? Mm -hmm. Instead of just saying, would you mind handing me that box of cereal from the shelf? And that is like a low um, risk example, but high risk examples, like when you start to think about it, I started being like, oh, my God. Well, yeah, I mean, I've spent my whole life trying to anticipate <laughs> uh-huh. what other people want and need and then communicating with them around that. But the problem with that, as Dr. Fonkin pointed out, is that you give them no agency or autonomy over what it is. You've decided what they truly want. Anyway, yes. I just mind blown. I've been thinking about it. A lot. Well, if you do that, too, in veterinary medicine, anticipating other people's needs, especially for support staff. Oh, yeah. That is like. I mean, that's 90% of the job. Mm-hmm. Like, you try to think ahead so that you can just hand them whatever they need. You get to know them well enough. You know, like, I know for this particular thing, they're probably going to want A, B, or C. Here are all three. Let them pick whichever one they want. But, I mean, going back to your box of cereal thing, I would be like, okay, do they think that if I go and get the box of cereal, that do they think that I'm assuming that they can't do something for themselves? Should I go do it? Should I not? And then I end up not. And then I'm like, oh, God, now they're mad at me for not getting them the damn box of cereal. So that's why you can't do that with me. <laughs> so if you stack guest culture on top of anxiety, I think. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> think about it. Yeah. It's interesting because one of my colleagues, Dr. Mike Cavanaugh, who I have utmost respect for, and uh, he talks about how it's important to just ask, just check it out. Check mm-hmm. it out instead of making assumptions. And I'm sure you've heard the, the assumption is making an ass out of you and me, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're just assuming that this other person may or may not want to help us get that box of cereal or whatever it is. But we're going to put this little nugget out there and see if they take it. Really, what you need is, um, maybe this might help a little bit too, is when somebody starts dropping those little guesses. To say, okay, do you want me to hear you on that? Do you need help with that? Do you want me to handle that? Would you like me to grab that box for you? Or did you just want to tell me that you can't reach it? Yeah. <laughs> Follow-up questions. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. And and this is how I have started, you know, gra- making a gradual change in my life. Um, but people who also grew up in in a culture that is very like put off by being direct. Like you hear people in the South a lot be like, oh, rude Northerners, so direct and snippy or whatever, you know, not passive aggressive. Mm -hmm. The South really likes passive aggression. I feel like sometimes when I'm very direct and people, people find it abrasive, even if I'm just trying to be assertive, like I have to get my tone just right. Living here, I have to be just like perfect tone and delivery or else sometimes people are like, damn. I know. It's like <laughs> one side of being direct and the other side being condescending. Which one? Right. Want to be in the right. middle. You know, like, yes, we got to walk the line here. Mm-hmm. Anyway. That's an added challenge that you have down there for sure. Yeah. Between that and the heat. Right. <laughs> but I'd like to talk some more about some of the submissions that we had. And I'd like to read this quote from a listener. The listener says, having been buffeted pretty heavily by the winds of grief recently, losing both my grandparents within a month and all three of our dogs within a year. That sucks. Mm -hmm. I've found that it's easier to just be honest with clients and coworkers about what is going on in my life 
to a reasonable extent. In the immediate aftermath of all of this, just saying something along the lines of, please forgive me for not being 100%, I just found out my grandpa died this morning, is pretty powerful for building empathy from clients and making a connection on a human level. Reminding them that we aren't gods, we are just educated and doing our best. Uh, In the context of losing my pets, I've also been honest with clients about my own struggles regarding when it's time, I'm assuming they mean for euthanasia, Mm -hmm. in conjunction with their own decision making. I've found that this honesty not only builds my own resilience and personal acknowledgement of I don't have to have it together all of the time, but it also builds camaraderie with my clients and coworkers, reminding everyone that we are all on the same team. That quote encompasses many of the aspects of resilient people. And uh, Brene Brown had a list of six attributes of resilient people. And this quote really embodies uh, many of these. Taking ownership of their own feelings and then deciding how to manage that. Perspective taking. This has happened to me. It's sad. I'm going to share it honestly. And then people can say, just like me, she's had this happen, right? That's self-compassion. Just like me, I can be there for these people with euthanasia because I've also had that. And I'm being compassionate with myself. I can offer that compassion to others. Connecting with people around these issues, sharing honestly, saying this is part of my life, made that connection with her, with her colleagues and her her clients. and then really bringing in some support through that. I mean, she didn't apologize either, which I love. She said, I appreciate your patience or be patient with me, please. Mm -hmm. She or he, it could be a he, said, you know, I appreciate be patient, which is engaging other people to support you in your process. All of those skills that she, or all of those mechanisms that she outlines or he outlines address uh, that resiliency within and also contribute to post-traumatic growth, which we're going to talk about a little bit too. But after these traumas, right, this person figured out a way to incorporate the experience they were having into their work in such a way that it offered some strength and learning and growth, not only to the person, but also to those around them. So I love that quote because it just encompasses so many pieces of of resiliency and healthy resiliency, right? Not just pushing through. I can't let these tears come. I'm going to push myself as hard as I can. So nobody knows what's going on with me. I'm not going to share the story with anybody. I'm going to shut down and do my job. And then when you have some sort of emotional breakdown after, uh, you know, not processing anything and shoving everything down, then people are like, whoa, mm-hmm. <laughs> what is happening? So, Sounds like my 30s. Right. <laughs> The whole decade. Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, Dr. Funken, even just as an aside, we have recently decided on the podcast that we're going to use the universal she from now on. Um, <laughs> because most of the people in veterinary medicine are women. And we always say assume she too. And, you know, there's been a universal he for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, on this podcast, it can be universal she. That's okay. Mm-hmm. All I right. Think. Um <laughs> Well, before we talk about 
post-traumatic growth. Are there any other quotes from listeners that we should go over? Or should we talk about that first and then come back to some? There was one that uh, really spoke to perspective taking. So the six attributes of resilient people that Brene Brown identifies are resourceful problem solvers, perspective takers. They can stop, look at the whole picture. They don't just focus in on the one issue, but they can take the whole perspective in. Seeking help when it's needed, which I know is sometimes a challenge for veterinary professionals. Definitely. Taking ownership of their emotions and the actions that follow. Having access to social support and then being connected with other people. So those uh, six elements are found in resilient people. So I'm just going to read this quote because I believe that it talks to perspective taking. And she's also talking about honesty. This is kind of like being honest, but a little different. And it also doesn't mean venting, but I do find that it's helpful to say to each other, this is hard. I'm not alone. You're not alone. This is hard for all of us. And sometimes even this is harder than it used to be. And I think I've heard this a lot in the last couple of years, that veterinary medicine is harder than it used to be. The emotional toll of veterinary medicine has grown over the last two years due to client behavior, and I know I'm not alone in feeling this because I've said this. This is harder than it used to be, and so many of my colleagues who have responded with a resounding, oh my gosh, yes. Acknowledging together that the field has changed has allowed me to rework both my expectations of the field as well as my boundaries for what I allow myself. Again, In this quote, she's talking about taking ownership, managing her emotions, connecting with people, and perspective taking. It's hard, and it's hard for all of us. I'm not alone. You're not alone. I think that's so powerful. I don't know how other people feel about it, but it helps me to know that the crap that I'm going through, other people go through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because like, then you can see people have come out of it already. You can, like, get advice from them potentially about what they would do different. Or maybe they're just like, nope, this always sucks no matter what. Like, losing a parent or something like that. Like, that pretty much universally sucks, you know? And so you just need time from Mm -hmm. that. But but for me, really knowing, knowing that other people have gone through the same thing, I don't know. It just makes me feel, like, more connected to humanity or something. Mm -hmm. And that you're not alone. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's exactly what it's called. Uh, Kristen Neff, who's done the work on self-compassion, calls it common humanity. Oh. Yep. Cool. All right. Just like me, this person has suffered. Just like me, this person feels love. Just like me, this person feels joy. Just like me, this person gets worried. And uh, it's important for us to remember that we have this common humanity if we have feelings, and most of us do. So, and we all have experiences, and connecting on that level is important. Earlier, you mentioned post traumatic growth. What exactly is that? We've talked a lot about post traumatic stress. And people, I think, when you say post traumatic stress, kind of understand what that means. Those are the things that happen to people once they come out of a trauma. It may be, um, Memories, sadness, uh, delayed grief, all kinds of things can create post-traumatic stress, anxiety. So there's a concept of post-traumatic growth, which they've seen in people that are able to come through a trauma, 
but don't have that post-traumatic stress response. And so they've looked at the different characteristics of people that have a post-traumatic growth experience after a trauma. And these uh, characteristics are similar to those of resilient people. Resilient people that have these uh, six qualities of resilience or a basic concept of resilience or act out of resilience tend to be able to shift towards post-traumatic growth, but they're a little bit different. So post-traumatic growth, you really see an appreciation for life. People are looking at things with a larger view and have finding some appreciation, strengthening relationships with others. Maybe this is part of the common humanity, reaching out to and connecting with, with each other. Instead of seeing their world as completely changed and smaller, minimized, it's expanding and they see possibilities. Even after a trauma, what are the possibilities that are there that are left in the wake of the trauma? Personal strength. I believe there's a core of personal strength in most everyone, and we call on it when we need to. And if we didn't have that, we probably would perish. So oftentimes when I'm working with people, that have had a trauma, we talk about what are the strengths that you've used in the past to get through things. You still have those. So post-traumatic growth is continuing to build on those strengths that you have that have gotten you through all of the things that you've got through to get to this point. And then usually there's some kind of a spiritual change or maybe even a, a change in your outlook on life or something like that. Like I think a lot of people through the pandemic, and I don't know, a lot. We've we've heard about the great resignation and all these different terms that have come out. I think this opportunity for post-traumatic growth has been seen in people that have stopped to reflect on what they're doing every single day and say, do I want to keep doing this? Is this really where I want to spend my time? Does this really have the same meaning to me? And I think people are making decisions to do something different. I did. Yeah. Uh, I I decided to take retirement and really focus on the Veterinary Hope Foundation and the places where I felt like I could have an impact and to just kind of slow down a little bit. So it offered an opportunity for many to stop and say, what am I doing? How am mm -hmm. I doing it? What's What are my priorities? And what's important to me? And so people that were able to look at that and say, I need to make a little change or everything's good. They that was looking at it through a lens of, of growth instead of just being stuck in a trauma, how everything in our world was different and it'll never be the same or, you know, whatever that trauma state would be. You mentioned that post-traumatic growth can almost be viewed as like an opposite response to post-traumatic stress disorder. Did I, am I understanding that correctly? Or can you go through a period of post-traumatic stress and then bridge into post-traumatic resilience or has that been looked at? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that we go through the trauma and we feel the trauma and I think people uh, sometimes, and I mean, the suffering is real. The trauma is real. And sometimes people get stuck in that or it keeps getting re-triggered or it tends, the trauma tends to start kind of guiding everything in their life through that kind of veil of the trauma versus working through a lot of those emotions and feelings and, and taking action and then looking at it with a post-traumatic growth and moving into that. So it's not either or. I think it is 
Yeah. And maybe some people don't stay as long in the trauma or the post-traumatic stress part. And, you know, they've done research, that not research, but there's books on animals and how they respond to a trauma, like yeah. being chased and they shut down and they look like they're dead. And then their body has a complete shaking out of everything. I mean, their physiology just kicks in once the threat is gone and they kind of have this reset part and then they move forward. So it's instinctual to have some of this trauma, the fear and all that's real, right? And then to say, okay, the danger's gone or I'm working through this and I see some new possibility. And now I see gratitude for these things I didn't notice before or whatever. I don't know if this 100% qualifies. My kind of response to anything that was traumatic in my career was to not respond, in the, especially in the moment. Hmm. I just kind of, and when I'm talking about things that I find would find traumatic was we, like, for instance, if, if you're doing like a necropsy on a dog, and especially if that's not something that you've seen very often, it can be a little jarring. And for anything that was like that, I just just refused to react. I just, you know, no matter what I was feeling, I would just try to shut it down because I'm supposed to be professional. And I found I started getting a little bit worried about myself because I started not having like feelings about things. I mean, I don't know. I was like, do I need to take like a test to make sure I'm not like a psychopath or something? (laughs) I started just like, you know, people would tell me about something horrible and I'd just be like, Nah, nothing. But the other day I was looking through a record and there were, when I opened up a file, there were pictures of a necropsy. Oh, yeah. That I wasn't expecting. Right. And for the first time since the very first time I've been in the field, like it's bothering me now, I was just like, I started crying. I was just kind of like, you know, a very emotional response to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to let myself feel this. Yeah. Because I had not allowed myself to. And so I had myself a little cry, close the file, breathe, and then get back into it again. And I was like, that's, I felt like that was a good thing because, you know, I <laughs> I didn't let myself do that for so long. So I don't know if that kind of qualifies, but that's what came to mind whenever we were talking about it. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely spot on. Because what happened when you saw that file was your memory was triggered. You were back in that space. The feelings are still there within you, right? They Mm -hmm. haven't been released. And you were able this time to sit and let all that energy release, which then opens up space for different possibilities or different things. And the coping mechanism of shutting down makes complete sense, right? We stop all emotion. And when you stop the the negative emotions, you also stop the positive ones from coming, right? Yep. The joy and the the happy, the the upbeat things, you know, you kind of just shut down because you're protecting yourself. Of course you are, right? This is traumatic. You don't want to feel all these things. So allowing yourself at this distant space, right, in a safe place to sit and have that experience can then clear that and relieve that for you. It releases all that energy that's been maybe in in there for this long. So that is definitely an example of a post-traumatic growth experience. Yay, growth. Yay, JJ. (laughs) 
I think it's an interesting concept for us to really consider now as our world is coming. I think COVID is still around. It's going to be with us as endemic. But I think as we come out of this and we see how things have changed, and I know one of our, our quotes was around the change in the last two years with clients and relationships and the way vet medicine is done and social media and all of those kinds of things that can be really traumatizing right now to be in veterinary medicine. It's hard for me to say that because I love veterinarians so much. And yeah. we've seen people that are really going through rough, rough, rough things. So how do we not let that overcome us? And how do we keep seeing the things that we're grateful for and the things we appreciate and connecting with our teams and sharing our stories and having self-compassion and compassion for others, I think, uh, and new possibilities and recognizing how strong all of you are for doing what you do on a daily basis. How can we keep the focus on on that while acknowledging all of the other things that are going on? It's tough. I, I think I think that COVID and some of the things that were necessary for us to do to respond to COVID sort of sped up a process that probably would have happened anyway, but over like five to 10 years mm-hmm. instead of six to 12 months. Yeah. <laughs> I, and what I saw with COVID that I think is making, I'm going to say the biggest impact in the way things are in the industry right now is that veterinarians and staff and practices started setting boundaries, I think, for the first time. All at once, every single veterinary clinic was like, we're going to pull the lever and we're going to switch from no boundaries at all, taking every single thing that calls no matter what, working ourselves to death. We're pulling the emergency lever and we're going to setting every single boundary at one time. And not just one clinic, but everyone, every single clinic pulled the emergency lever, right? And and so uh, all of those things saying, we're going to leave at a reasonable time. We're not going to overload our staff. We're not going to take in more patients into our busy hospital facility than we have the staff to adequately care for, because that's a problem. That's a patient care problem. Uh, It's a liability problem. Like all of those things compounded at one time to create the situation that we're in now. Uh, But I I think we would have eventually done all of those things. It was just that we didn't do any boundary setting for decades. And then we're just like, (laughs) pull the lever, crunk all at once. Started saying no. (laughs) You know, that's my personal opinion. Yep. I don't have any data to back that up. And that's probably why client reaction has been not that great right they're like what i am used to having your personal cell phone number and you unlocking the clinic on the weekend to give me medicine that i requested Mm -hmm. and now you're saying it's going to take three days to fill a prescription of course they're frustrated right Mm -hmm. they were given no warning about the boundary (laughs) right (laughs) sorry (laughs) no it's true and we teach people how to treat us by the way we treat ourselves i'm sure i've said that on the podcast before so what we were doing in the past was teaching them they could treat us one way. And then mm-hmm. we switched that maybe and said, nope, uh, now you have to treat us this way or we are, we're expecting to be treated this way. And people are like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. They'll get, hopefully get used to it. Yeah. I think they will. I mean, this, I think it's going to be a bumpy ride in the next three to five years. 
as things shake out. But I think it's not just in veterinary medicine. I mean, it's in human medicine. It's in a lot of industries. But I think that once things shake out, we're going to be able to look back on this time and be like, thank goodness we made those changes. Because Mm -hmm. what I really don't want is for veterinary medicine to go back to the way that it was when I graduated vet school in the middle of the Great Recession. And all we heard about was there are too many vets. There's vet overpopulation. No one could find a job. Like it was stressful and it led to, you know, the ability to exploit veterinarians and workers, right? Because mm-hmm. they didn't have, you know, like, what, what are you going to do? Find another job? You know, mm-hmm. like, so now I'm like, yes, this is the, you know, like, mm-hmm. this is the things, this is time <laughs> snapping back, right? And I think hopefully we can find a, somewhere in the middle to land. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it does frustrate me and worry me that some people view the most stressful time in my life, graduating into the Great Recession, as like the glory days of veterinary medicine, <laughs> when profits were so awesome and, yeah, was the, and labor was so cheap. People, and I'm but... like, hmm, mm-mm. <laughs> yeah. let's please never go back to that. I know, I'm frustrated. Like, uh... And I'm not even, like, I, I'm not even associate anymore, but I, the, the amount of love, it's love, the amount of love that I feel for my baby veterinarians, okay, <laughs> my baby vets, I just want to protect them all, mm-hmm. just herd them around <laughs> and guard them. And so I'm like, no, we are not going to go back. You're a veterinary yeah. weege. Yes, I'm a veterinary border collie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we probably got off topic there. No, that was fine. That's my bad. That's my bad. Well, let's talk about mindfulness activities and sort of their benefits and their limitations. JJ is going to read a quote from a listener. Okay. I incorporated mindfulness activities into my weekly planner. I tried several, and I keep the ones that I enjoy the most. I tried gardening, hiking, running, exercise classes, and yoga, meditation, and bird watching. I like bird watching and gardening the best. I try to incorporate at least 10 minutes every day. Bird watching and gardening, it sounds like we need to be friends. <laughs> I was about to say, it sounds like you. <laughs> it was me in a mustache and beret in secret. I was in disguise. I think um, I love that a listener put this in as part of the resilience. That pause that we were talking about earlier. When we talked about, you know, how we stretch ourselves, we do, 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 do until we are just exhausted. This whole ability to stop and pause and say, I want to actually shift my attention. Uh, mindfulness is really paying attention in the moment without judgment. So bird watching, you're paying attention in the moment to what's in front of you without judgment. You're just being in the experience and taking time to step out of our doing, doing, doing to being present in the moment without judgment is really important as a reset. And it, I can see that it's a skill for resiliency The if we're able to allow ourselves to do that. And I love that she tries to do it 10 minutes every day. And finding something that really works for you. I mean, meditation doesn't work for a lot of people. They're like, I cannot sit down. My brain will not stop. And so they spend five minutes and they're freaked (laughs) out. They're more freaked out afterward. They're anxious, right? 
So find something else if it's reading for 10 minutes or going out and pulling weeds. I've started working at an organic farm. And so I go out and pull weeds. I mean, I have bazillion weeds in my own yard, but for some reason, it's easier to go to this farm and have the task of we're clearing this seed bed of all these weeds so that we can plant next year's garlic. And so really just being focused on that task in that moment without judgment is a reset for me. So finding what works for you is really helpful and then practicing it. What I've noticed in talking to people is even stepping away if you can get away overnight or for a weekend, it's great. But I don't know if you've had this experience where just even going to a different location for one night and maybe going out to dinner or doing something different than my daily routine or going to the mountains and going for a, a couple hour hike and then spending the night up there, you come back and it just feels like a reset. It's like I can take on whatever is still here because I've had that time to myself. So again, it's a an active way to add something in, to incorporate something. And oftentimes, I think there's gratitude in that too, because we're focusing on something that we might not normally focus on and appreciating it, appreciating yeah. that bird. Or, you know, I found the most amazing moth the other day. I wish I could show it to everybody. <laughs> what was it like? It was it lime green. It was yeah. probably... Two and it was the it was the caterpillar. Luna, Luna it's going it's gonna turn into a, it's a I O is the name of it an I O moth. Oh, okay. So it'll it'll get in its chrysalis and turn into a moth. So it was lime green and it had like all these spikes around it, like looked like little flowers on top of it. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And I was like, I, I wonder if it glows in the dark. Uh, I didn't <laughs> pick it up or move it or anything. I right. don't know. <laughs> but that it was touch. just delightful. I thought. Nature made this. This is, yeah. I, yeah, and I got to observe it. So anyway, that's my mindful moment. <laughs> JJ pulled up a picture for me to see of the IO moth. It is uh, really impressive. That's so awesome. But if I'd been running from one thing to the next, I might not have even noticed it. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, as far as mindfulness activities go, is that sort of our whole arsenal for for building and, and protecting our ability to be resilient? Or are there other strategies that we should be aware of? I think the mindful uh, practice is something that we can do individually. I also think it's important as we are going throughout our days to see, and especially at work, do I need help? Can I ask for help? So like doing this self-assessment, am I managing things? How am I feeling? Am I fully present in work? Do I need to take a deep breath and feel my feet on the ground here? Because I'm in this room with these people and I feel like my brain is somewhere else. So really self-assessment and self-awareness. Are there people that I need to support me? Connection is so huge in resilience. Hmm. Who are those people that you connect to? Who can you come home at the end of the day or call or text during the day and say, Oh my gosh, I just had to do a this kind of procedure and I'm spent. And the other person just writes, gotcha. You know, having people that know us well enough to be there for us is really important as well. So some of the practices are individual, mm -hmm. mindfulness and self-reflection and all of those. But other ones really take other people. Can you know, if we're gonna do some problem solving or figuring out who needs help when and where and how can we provide that? 
or just connecting to just vent for a little while. Uh, All of those things are important. Before we wrap up our episode today, we definitely want to hear about the Veterinary Hope Foundation. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your work with that organization. Yeah, thank you for asking about that. The Veterinary Hope Foundation was started a little over a year ago by two veterinarians who are very passionate about mental health and wellness in the profession. Mm -hmm. And there was, we might have talked about this last time we met, but there were uh, several suicides within a week, maybe four. It was a rough week. And so these two uh, veterinary professionals got together and they said, we need to do something about this. And so they formed this nonprofit board and I was brought on uh, a couple months after they started. And their goal is to create supportive communities for veterinarians to come together and connect, just kind of like what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it through a support group model. So we offer support groups to veterinarians. We have in the last year hired a program director, which is amazing. Yeah. And she has hired 10 facilitators. They're all licensed professionals, mental health professionals that facilitate the support group. It's not therapy. Therapy is very different. Yeah. This is really support. So we might have a topic or a theme for the night, like setting boundaries, saying no, or what self-care practices do you have, or how do you deal with imposter syndrome? Or how do you uh, recover after an angry client interaction? So there might be a topic to the group, but really we bring together six to eight people in this small group format. It's done on Zoom. And uh, the facilitator just basically facilitates the process. And then we talk about what's been going on. And uh, the groups last six weeks. And so we've gone, I piloted three groups in the fall. So we had 24 people come through the groups and um, got feedback from them on what worked well what we might need to to change. And so since then, I don't, I'm not sure how many groups we've offered since we have our program director uh, keeping track of all of that, but we're doing affinity related groups as well. So like AABP might have a group for AABP members. Veterinary, let's see that Facebook, uh, Veterinary Moms Facebook might have a group for them. Yeah. Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care, we might have a group for them. So it's been a really nice way to bring people together with common experience and knowledge and offer them a safe, confidential space to share their thoughts on self-care, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And these groups are uh, offered at no cost to participants. So if people wow. are interested, they can go to the Veterinary Hope Foundation. I think it's veterinaryhope.org. Just click and look around at what we're doing. We're really trying to educate clients as well on some of the challenges in veterinary medicine. And so there's mm-hmm. some really cool videos that have been done that like the dog saying, hi, I'm sunshine. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, Karen is my veterinarian. And did you know that she, and then it'll say a little story about her. And so it's kind of an interesting way to get clients to see that their veterinarians and veterinary professionals are people. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, Mm -hmm. it's important that they're taken care of because they take such wonderful care of our animals, our loved ones. So it's been a really positive experience. And um, seeing these groups, the other thing that we've done with the groups is created a network for them to stay in touch during the week and after the six weeks end. And I believe all three groups that I ran, at least two of the three groups continued to meet on their own as a peer support group 
after those initial successions. So the connections that were made continue. And these, uh, they were all women and they were from all over the country. So it's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Gosh, uh, we'll definitely put the link to the Veterinary Hope Foundation uh, on our social media and in the episode notes uh, for this episode, because mm-hmm. I think that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We need all of the tools that uh, are available mm-hmm. uh, to, to help help keep people here with us. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, Dr. Funken, we have enjoyed having you on the podcast so much. To close out our episodes, we often do a gratitude practice where we talk about our favorite thing for the week. Would you want to join us for that to close out the episode? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so my favorite thing is that I just turned 40. Ooh. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, I, you know, I, I think we've actually talked about on an episode with Dr. Funken before about how I usually have not really a birthday party, but when I turn a decade, I have like a, like a rager. But I just never quite figured out like, what am I going to do for 40? You know, and I uh, had to have a little, you know, we talked about it before. I had recently had a little surgery. I had to recover from that. I was actually recovering from that when my birthday arrived. And then I immediately the next day started a school semester Mm -hmm. again. And so I was thinking, am I going to have maybe like we'll just do like a pool party, like I'll rent a pool or maybe we should like have like a laser tag lock in. Like that would be the awesome, like a 1995 style laser tag lock in (laughs) would be amazing. And I was going back and forth. And then (laughs) Stevie Nicks announced that she's coming to Huntsville to play on Halloween night. Okay. Now, the people that have listened to the podcast for a long time know that I am obsessed with Stevie Nicks and that also I am obsessed with Halloween. And I just like flipped my shit over this. It was like the stuff of my wildest fantasies. Like, are you kidding me? So anyway, I got tickets and that is my birthday. (laughs) That's my birthday. And JJ's going with me. And we're going to sit on the front row of the mezzanine. It's going to be super fun. Ah, That sounds like a great way to celebrate. What a perfect person to celebrate with. Oh, my God. We're going to have such a good time. We'll have to post our Stevie Nicks outfits. Because it's on Halloween. You can't not go dress to Stevie Nicks on Halloween. All right. So, anyway, that is my favorite thing. I am extremely grateful for this. Like, I can't even express to you how awesome. (laughs) I've been, like, excited about it. I've just been on a high for days about it. Like, it's just the most amazing thing. Uh, I can tell from your text. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, good. I mean, I was excited, too. But I was like, I don't, I mean. uh, Ryder is on another level with this. (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't know. Be excited. It's nice. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, JJ, what about you? So I guess mine is a little bit Halloween-centric, too, in that Love it. I've been kind of in a rut because I know that, I mean, this is a new house, so I I have to kind of, like, re-decide mm-hmm. on what I'm going to do about Halloween. Okay. And I finally, like, made some decisions and okay. pulled the trigger on some things, so... Whereas before it was just this blank, empty, overwhelming, scary, like, I mean, it's Halloween. Why am I making such a big deal about it? But 
Because you have anxiety. And it's fine. I get it's it. It's my favorite holiday. And <laughs> plus, you know. And you have family coming. I have family coming. Yeah, it's the first time why. they'll be at the new place. So I'm just like, hey, what? It? You know, perfectionism's kicking in. So I'm like, stop it. But I was like talking over with Ben this morning and just started looking at some stuff. And I was like, oh, you know what? I think it'd be, I think it'd be kind of cute to get those plastic silhouettes that look like black cats and just put them all in the front yard. Hell yeah. So <laughs> that's my idea. We'll see what it looks like. Good Amazing. thing those are cheap. So, <laughs> right. But yeah, I was just happy I made some decisions. <laughs> I love it, JJ. Early Halloween planning is like the only way to This go. is late for me. I'm sorry. This is, I mean, usually yeah, we are July. here in real life here. It is the end of August. <laughs> uh-huh. So it is a little late. I'm sorry. It's sad, but <laughs> this is my life. This makes me happy. <laughs> only eight weeks away. Yep. Okay. Wow, Dr. is Funken. that right? Eight weeks? Yeah. Whoa. Right. <laughs> Dr. Funken, what about you? Okay, I'm going to stay on the Halloween theme. Okay, great. I wish I could show you guys my mask. I ordered it already. So I'm sailing on semester at sea again. I I went on it in 2019. I, it uh-huh. might have been right before I did your episode. But anyway, I'll be gone for four months. So I'm going to be on Whoa. a ship with 450 college students, faculty, and families for four months sailing around Europe and Africa. And what? wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I'm very excited. And uh, we have Halloween on the ship. So I have had this mask for years. That's just like a blank white face with no expression. Yeah. So when people look at it, it kind of scares them because they're like, mm-hmm. are they looking at me? What do they think? And so when I was on the voyage last time, and I'm the counselor on the ship, right? I don't want to interrupt you, but I just need to back up for just a second. When you're telling me this, this is not a vacation that you paid for, but this is a job that yes, you acquired? that's right. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a job. So I will be the... <laughs> Amazing. All those baby veterinarians. Uh, uh, well, Amazing. They're not okay. veterinarians. While they might be veterinarians, they're all undergrads. Oh, so, my gosh. Yeah, I'll be working. As a counselor. So I'm the counselor on the ship. So, you know, I'm kind and compassionate and warm and all that. And then I put on this mask that scares people because it's like total expression. And last time I was on the ship, everyone was walking around saying, who is that? Who is that? Because I'm completely covered up and I have no expression on my face. I mean, little kids get frightened of it. I had to stop wearing it to my kids' elementary school. So anyway. (laughs) I left the mask on the ship last time because one of the people that was from South Africa just loved it so much. I said, here, you can have the mask. So I had to order one. So I found the exact mask. So I already have my costume. I'll send you a picture. Complete yeah, white yeah. face. Yeah, it's just got a complete face with no expression. And then I'm going to wear like a sweatshirt and dark pants. Michael Myers. And it's kind of scary. So, Oh, my gosh. I've we're all set for Halloween. Really <laughs> yes. Right. That's amazing. It's exciting. What I wonder what like what uh how would Freud interpret the blank the blank mask for a therapist? It's very Well, you know, it's kind yeah. of interesting cuz it's I you know, I'm observing everybody doing all the things they're doing and they have no idea who I am. <laughs> and I can dance like a crazy person and no one knows it's me. Right. Which I did last time. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the way to go right mm-hmm. there. <laughs> yes. Well, Dr. Funken, again, we just appreciate it so much. Uh, you are our longest running podcast guest. Oh, thank you. Uh, so we appreciate it so much. Uh, 
And uh, thank you for joining us all the way from Colorado. Yes. Uh, it was great to be here again, and I'll look forward to season four. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> it's got, we're planning it. All right, good. If you good. have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. It's at introvets, and we're on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Yes, please. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.